Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know, and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors. Today, we're happy to welcome you to Sam Cash, newly named partner at Project A, a pan-European focused seed and Series A fund with $600 million under management and offices in London and Berlin. Sam is heading the company's London office and has helped build up its investment activities in the UK. He has written about technology entrepreneurship for TechCrunch, VentureBeat, and occasionally shares his thoughts in his newsletter, Socratic Tech, which is well worth a read. Want to be on top of who the best up-and-coming emerging VCs in Europe are and maybe even invest with them? Register for our newsletter at theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know. Sam, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you guys very much for hosting me today. It's really much appreciated. Great to be here. And it's actually a super exciting time we're having you here because at the time of publishing this episode, you will just have been made partner officially. So huge congratulations on that. Thank you very much. Very kind of you to say. And yes, it's very timely and great to be able to break the news on this podcast. Yeah, for sure. I think it also begs the question that we, of course, have to dive into your story and your journey to becoming partners. So please share with us, how did you get there? It's been a a long and winding road, or at least it feels like it from my standpoint. So my route into venture is interesting, let's say. I always felt like I had all of the elements of someone that would enjoy being a venture capitalist prior to me actually knowing what venture capital was. So I grew up in London. I'm from London, born here, educated here, really into computers as a kid. So I grew up as an only child and I spent a heck of a lot of time in front of my computer. I remember vividly first getting connected onto the internet around 97, 98. And that for me was just an incredible moment because it opened up a whole new world of communities and programs and games and other people that I could connect with in the comfort of my bedroom. So I was very much into computers. That translated into having just a huge amount of kind of online side hustles in the early 2000s. I had an affiliate marketing site. I used to write for a streetwear blog. That latter job actually allowed me to both before and during my university studies work for a digital agency. And it was around this time that I kind of discovered startups or more so I kind of discovered that it was possible to actually have some kind of job online on the internet or working with software or working with interesting products and programs. Through university, it became really clear to me that I wanted my path to be within technology. And this is back in 2007, 2008. And in Europe specifically, I may be showing my age here, but startups and certainly venture capital were not very well known, certainly amongst my peer set, certainly amongst my parents and people that I knew. I actually remember first subscribing to Fred Wilson's blog really early on. I had very little idea what a VC was. It was actually 
kind of further down the line in my journey that I really discovered what kind of early stage investing was. Post-university, I was lucky enough to get a job working for a hedge fund that was focused on TMT, so technology, media, and telecoms, as well as consumer investing. That was undoubtedly the best job that I could get at the time. And I kind of thought to myself, well, great, you know, I can work with and study technology companies. Let's kind of see where that leads. I did that for a number of years. It was an incredible experience here in London. And I guess rather fortuitously, that firm partially structured the debt for Spotify. This is back in 2015, 2016. Through that process, I actually got introduced to my next employer, which was Hedo Sophia, who are holders of Spotify. And that was kind of my, I guess, official foray into being a venture capitalist. So I started in public equities and then actually kind of graduated into being a proper VC doing growth stage investing. From there, I um, ended up having a few years in New York. I invested in a few companies there. So namely Compass, which is a sort of digitized real estate brokerage. They went public last year. That was a huge success. And from that, met my next employer, which was Betaworks, which is a startup studio. So, so Betaworks is an incredible place. It's kind of part investment fund, part accelerator, part incubator, and kind of everything in between. And I joined that firm in 2017. I was there for a couple of years. Incredible experience. It was my first kind of attempt at building product, product managing various companies within the Betaworks brand, and was kind of halfway between company building, the accelerator and investing as well, which was really invaluable to me. I made the decision to move back to Europe and specifically London. I joined Project Day having known the team for some years. I think sort of culturally and from a genesis standpoint, Betaworks and Project Day were relatively similar. Project A actually started as an organization that predominantly incubated companies and then invested in companies alongside that. As of today, we're very much just a pure play venture capital firm with a large operational team that's adjacent to that. So I joined the firm specifically to open our office here in London, which has been an incredible journey over the last three years. There's now five of us in the London office we've kind of significantly built out our presence here. Sam, I'm curious to hear you contrast the world of VC and then the world of acting as an operator. Could you put a few more words to how you've seen that change and what you've been able to bring over with you, what you haven't been able to? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's a super helpful exercise for any venture investor to have experienced what it's like to build a company or a project or a product from day zero. It really helps in a number of different ways. One, I think the exposure that you get to kind of a wide myriad of problems that you have to solve as either the founder, co-founder or CEO, it's really invaluable for a number of different reasons. I think the experience that you get trying to solve a, a very wide number of problems from day zero under you know significant stress really makes you empathetic to a lot of the founders that you speak to ultimately as a VC. I think One thing that is probably underappreciated is that a lot of things in early stage company building are really quite counterintuitive, you know, kind of the hunt for product market fit and getting your product to a point that it satisfies a large enough market before kind of putting the foot on the gas in terms of 
growth or marketing. I guess the discipline to be able to do that. And certainly I think for me as a VC, that's translated in terms of some cognizance of that fact and the ability to advise companies that sometimes, certainly when you're in that pre-product market fit stage, it's not all about growth. It's really about just nailing that specific problem and building a product that solves that specific problem for a cohort of users. One thing that I've always believe from quite early on in my career is I think within the venture industry, there are differing camps on this argument. Some people will argue that the best VCs will have operating experience. Some other people will argue that operating experience is not required. You know, there's evidence for both. And like most things in life, the truth tends to be somewhere in the middle. The view that I took at least was that going forward, I wanted to be someone that had better alignment with the founders that I work with. I think the thing that really excites me is early stage investing predominantly. And that stage itself is, you know, frankly, quite iterative. It's quite artisanal. It's very high intensity in terms of you're trying to create something out of nothing. And I certainly took the view that having operating experience would better align me with founders and give me a better understanding of what that process was like. It's one thing to be in early stage, but then growth stage is a different game. I'm curious to hear because some would say the complexity increases, others would say that it doesn't. <laughs> I'm curious to hear your reflections on that. Is your experience as a former operator more valuable in the early stages in contrast to the later stages, or is it the same? Ultimately, where someone looks to spend their time is usually a combination of you know their skill set what drives them an opportunity set. I think for me specifically, I've always felt the most excitement about that very early stage. So kind of day zero to series A, let's call it. And that's for a number of reasons. I think given my background and sort of my general passion for internet and software generally, I really love kind of new products. I really love being able to work with founders and riff on product ideas, help them think through certain trade-offs and certain problems. Second to that, there's also a humanistic angle to it, which is, this is not to disparage anyone who's a growth investor, but when you're doing growth investing, you're often coming into companies which are to some extent almost pre-qualified. You know, it depends specifically where you're investing, whether that series B, C, D, or pre-IPO, let's call it. But often that kind of investable universe is pretty narrow. Often the companies that are within your pipeline, you have a fairly decent sense on who's doing well and who's not doing well. The venture industry is incredibly good at generating these narratives, yeah. usually fairly accurate narratives, sometimes false narratives around which companies are doing well and which companies are not doing so well. And often that becomes a bit self-reflexive. But what tends to happen when you're at the growth stage is it's less about really understanding the founders and the product and market itself. Whilst that's obviously important, I think the key challenge at that stage is really finding those incredible founders and convincing them to take your capital. If you're investing in Spotify Series B, C, if you look back at history, wasn't so much about kind of figuring out the intricacies of the product or how big the market was. It was probably more about just being able to get access to that round. So having said that, you know, the thing that I tend to have found at the growth stage is whilst it's, you know, amazing to be involved in, in large scale companies that are growing incredibly quickly, you still retain a very different relationship to the founders themselves. 
if you speak to founders about the venture capitalists that they really enjoyed working with, predominantly they tend to be the very early stage ones. They tend to be the VCs that kind of initially gave them a shot, that believed in them when they had next to nothing or, or frankly, hey. absolutely nothing versus the growth stage investors who are coming in at a much later stage when things are looking comparatively more solid. So for me, there's two elements. One, which is, you know, being early and being able to riff on product with founders to the humanistic side of being aligned with them and kind of in the trenches from day zero. I'd love to double click on something you said. You talked about the ability to get in versus the ability to actually understand the business before everyone else and thus you're ready to commit before all this. I'm curious to hear because at Proctic they got quite a bit of money under management compared to most funds in Europe. And as such, you might also quickly lose the price discipline and not say we'll go for pedigree founders because we know that we can pay our way in and then we don't have to do all the random bets on founders that, that haven't really built anything yet. <laughs> I'm curious to hear where you see yourself and also Project A on this spectrum of betting on the safe ones that already have proven that they can build a business versus betting on the undescribed sides. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, unfortunately, or certainly as venture investors, I'm not sure whether there's anything that always feels totally safe, if I'm perfectly frank. As I'm sure all the founders are aware, these are you know, high-risk ventures where the kind of reward asymmetry is huge. What I would say is that certainly as I look at our portfolio today, I wouldn't say that there's a huge bias for either repeat founders or founders that we've historically worked with at Project A. I think a lot of the commonalities that you see within founders and founding teams remain true across, you know, a myriad of different backgrounds, whether they founded companies before, whether they've worked in kind of an area of specialization before. But the things that we tend to look for tend to be just an incredibly precise and differentiated view around the market, a base level understanding of what the early product is and who the specific people are that are going to consume it. And then lastly, just a huge amount of grit in terms of wanting to birth this product or this company kind of into existence. And whilst we found that has been the case with founders that we've worked with before, oftentimes, you know, actually the grittiest founders that we see and the people that actually have the most hunger are people that are comparatively fresher to it. So I wouldn't say that there's any kind of bias in terms of the founders that we work with. And I'm sure you could probably fairly easily diligence that in our portfolio. Having said that, of course, I think within the venture market generally, there is a premium placed on repeat founders, uh, certainly founders who have been successful before for all of the obvious reasons success does beget success. And I think that's one for the obvious reason that there's probably a higher probability that they will succeed again, having done it before, made all of the mistakes and learned some of the counterintuitive things of founding a company from day zero. Two, I think, frankly, from the venture investor standpoint, many of which who sit on the boards, there's probably a comfort in knowing that you're going to work with an individual or a group of individuals who have done it before and who know their way around, which is, I guess, to say that their jobs will, frankly, not be totally diminished, <laughs> but will probably be somewhat easier because you won't have to go through a lot of the growing pains of working with someone who's maybe relatively fresh or a first-time founder and is more liable to making some of the more obvious mistakes. And I think that's just a kind of 
relatively natural reflex for a lot of funders. Now, that doesn't mean that it's the right thing to do. And I would be interested to see kind of actually how returns fare for sort of repeat founders versus first-time founders. I think generally the thing that's really hard about venture investing, I'm sure most other investors would agree with me, is there are very, very few rules in venture. And ultimately, you are looking for outliers. So either companies that can be outliers, but more predominantly at the early stage, sort of founders who can be outliers. And the problem with outliers is that there's always a break to a specific rule or narrative, whether it is, you know, continue to invest in second time founders, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and Brian Chesky and whoever else would again be exceptions to that rule. That I would say is kind of the predominant difficulty of being an early stage investor. There is always a proof point that a specific rule or kind of view within the market can be broken or has been broken before. Now you talked about rules and before you talked about there are many counterintuitive things in venture. What are some of these counterintuitive lessons that you have made? Most counterintuitive, which I think a lot of newer VCs kind of fail to really internalize. And I think to some extent, really only crystallizes within investors once you've witnessed it is just the power law dynamic. Everyone knows that's the case. Everyone's read the literature. Everyone's looked at the data. But I think, frankly, until you actually see how it affects returns within a fund, it's very hard for investors to really internalize that and apply that to the companies that they assess and potentially work with. For us, you know, we've been fortunate to work with a number of large-scale companies that we've backed from kind of seed or series A. I guess most recently Trade Republic, which is a 5 billion euro company as of today. And when you look at that company with regards to how it affects the performance of that specific fund, you do really get a sense of just how important it is to find companies that have just huge asymmetry. So that means that you're looking at companies where you feel the likelihood of success is low, but the probability of if it does succeed, it being an outlier is comparatively high. For someone that hasn't worked in venture or fortunate enough to have exposure to kind of very asymmetric investments, that's really, really hard to get a grasp on. So I'd say that's first and foremost. I'd say second, working with companies, or at least for me, I found in kind of the pre-product market fit stage, a lot of the things in that stage are often counterintuitive. It's often about narrowing down into a specific problem, typically that the founder has either come across themselves or has just kind of lived through and that they're hugely passionate about. It's about figuring out whether that problem is true for anyone else and specifically who those people are. It's about building a product for that initial cohort. And one of the counterintuitive things within that process is that you really need to build a product which satisfies an initial kind of beachhead market. And often that beachhead market, you hope, will kind of lather up into a much larger market. I mean, if you use Airbnb and, and Uber as examples, if you look at kind of the initial product that they built, you would maybe argue that those products are within niches, frankly. You know, Airbnb, they were 
effectively selling couch space in people's homes. Now, of course, the market for people wanting to sleep on other people's couches is probably relatively small. But the thing that obviously wasn't appreciated is that if you can prove that people want to do that, then you can lather up into larger markets. So you can then start renting spare rooms. You can then start renting whole homes. And obviously, where Airbnb is today, you know, they've started from renting couch space to renting entire homes and to some extent also having hotel inventory on their platform as well. Uber's another example of that. You know, they went from what might seem like a small privileged market of luxury chauffeurs delivered instantly via your mobile to allowing much larger market, which is allowing ride sharing to happen on their platform, to allowing now multimodal transportation, so scooters, bikes, cars, and everything in between. So the difficulty is, to reiterate, is when you look at these companies, when you are working with them at the very early stages, a lot of them might seem small, might seem niche, and it can often be both hard to see the much larger market, but more so it can be difficult to encourage founders to find some comfort with building a product that still satisfies a small market, but a market that can lather into a much larger one. Speaking of niches, Uber's final model that actually really worked, they found that in a uh, non-profit that was called something like the Homobile and was actually for the LGBTQ community that was helping each other get around in a safe manner. So in that way, That is really a case that proves the importance of a beachhead market and lathering up from that to something big. Super interesting. Now, Sam, I'd love to dive deeper into Project A. Someone at your team has been so ballsy to say that you're the only operator VC in Europe. And I thought, even though it's probably not you that has written that, I would love to challenge that and hear why do you think that you can go out and state that? So for anyone that is not aware... We are a seed and series A venture fund. We have about a billion euros under management. We're currently investing out of a fund four. And we do one specific thing that I would say is different to certainly most other VCs in Europe, which is we have a very large operational team. We have a hundred plus people on the operational side, all of which are cross-functional experts in their various fields. So we have teams across product, sales, marketing, hiring, engineering, full stack, so front-end, back-end, data science, uh, QA. Those individuals work solely for our portfolio, sort of at the discretion of specific founders themselves. So in regards to your specific question, to my knowledge, at least, we're the only firm that has such a large operational team and work so closely with our portfolio companies. Now, look, we don't strictly believe that we've productized anything on the operational side. I think we take the view that early stage company building is nuanced and highly iterative. And we provide that suite of individuals to our portfolio if and when they desire. So for example, hiring is something we do a lot of. We did 250 hires for our portfolio last year. To add to that, you know, we've been fortunate enough to invest in some outsized companies. I mean, Trade Republic, which I mentioned earlier, Crew, which is a telemedicine company, Sender, World Remit, a bunch of other ones as well. 
And the operational team has worked with pretty much all of those ventures at various different stages. So from very early stages to BC stage and beyond. And where we see it working well is, you know, the reality of, I guess, company building and venture investing is you want to invest in founders and teams that never require any help, never require any advice, can kind of do it all themselves. But the reality is we all know is that all founders would like to get advice, would sometimes like to get help, and if applicable, would like individuals who are wholly aligned with their company growth be able to wade in when things get tough. That's something that we've seen work incredibly well for all of our portfolio companies. What we've also found is quite a high correlation between the companies that have been successful and and the work that we've been able to do alongside them. That's not to take anything away from the work that the companies do themselves. They would have probably been as successful without us. But what we found we've been able to do is to help support companies strategically with things that they might not have capacity for and be able to specifically hire into those roles. So we're never kind of something that companies lean on. We just help plug gaps and help hire relevant talent to fill in those gaps for the companies themselves. You know, you guys at Project A have such a big team of people providing support to founders, as you just said. That's quite uncommon to see, I'd say, actually. And you kind of detailed it a bit, but I'd love to hear you expand on why you at Project A believe that that is so important for achieving your mission, which is at the end of the day, delivering results to LPs, right? It would be really interesting to understand how that stacks up so high in the level of priorities for you guys. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's a great question. First and foremost, on a personal level, I think the venture investors that are likely to succeed or more likely to succeed, I should say, are the ones that have mm-hmm. strong alignment with founders themselves and specifically A, experience of operating companies themselves and B, the ability to actually provide great advice and ultimately great operational work to those founders. I think culturally, we at Project A view that to be very, very important. So we want to make sure that we have the absolute best alignment with founders specifically. And we have found over the course of the last 10 years that the best way of us doing that is, you know, of course, not only providing capital, but also providing a qualified and aligned team of operators for those founders to lean on either for advice or more concretely for specific projects and operational tasks that they can do. So I'd say firstly, it's a question of internal culture and alignment with the founders themselves. Second to that, I'd say that it gives us as a firm really just incredible insights. So I always think of investing is ultimately just about information. So it's about A, the information that you gather and B, how you interpret that information. So we have, you know, 100 plus people, most of which are incredibly experienced, who have not only worked for startups and large scale tech companies outside of Project A, but have worked with a large majority of our existing portfolio. What we tend to find is as an investment team, we're actually capable of deriving some pretty amazing insights from A, what we see across our portfolio, and B, the information that we get from sort of functional heads in regards to new problems, new tools, new areas of interest that they're seeing developed within their specific fields, whether that's 
data yeah. and kind of new data infrastructure, whether it's product and sort of best processes with regards to that. That we believe gives us a pretty strong advantage. So to kind of summarize, I think the two things that we get from having this large operational team and managing this large operational team is one, just a really differentiated and aligned service that we're able to provide our portfolio. And two, just incredible insights from working closely with our portfolio and from our functional heads in regards to what is interesting within the world of technology. I'd love to actually hear your thoughts about something we've asked previous guests, which is how do you manage the relationship between the operational or platform team, whatever you want to call it, and the investment team? Because, you know, there's very interesting data points and insights that are generated by these different teams and that the risk of losing (laughs) that in this process is humongous, right? How do you guys deal with that? So, yeah, great question. I mean, we work together in a number of different ways. I mean, ultimately, we get together to work closely with founders When we tend to invest in a company, we tend to give that company what we call a venture development manager. Um, So this is an individual within Project A who is tasked with having a really, really precise and specific understanding of potential blockers that that company is having or is going to have. And they coordinate with both our operational team, the founders, and our investment team on getting everyone up to speed on what those blockers are, and more specifically doing the work internally on figuring out how we can potentially help in terms of getting those things unblocked. So I would say that those kind of insights and learnings tend to be coordinated by a central function at Project A. We really make a big effort to sort of continually connect on these things, continually kind of talk through specific areas of interest. Now, of course, everything that we see within tech is fluid and changing and happening faster than ever. So that does remain a challenge. And I think that's a challenge for everyone within our field. But what we do see as a huge advantage is just far more kind of nodes and data points and individuals who can feed into specific views that we have on an emerging market, on an emerging problem, on an emerging space that we might want to spend more time on. Before you talked about the power law and the importance of understanding that as a VC, now our audience is also understanding that you have a very big operational team and you dedicate quite a bit of effort in helping hands-on the founders, not only the investment manager doing that. So that means that there's this important decision point, of course, when you're making the investment and committing to the company. But then there's all these touch points afterwards that are somewhat detached from the investment manager, but where you keep on dedicating more and more resources to the company. But knowing the power law and how there's a pretty sharp drop-off rate as to who is actually worth betting on, I'm curious to hear how you manage that across the portfolio, because the power law, of course, that is there to force us to make the hard decisions. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, I think the, the reality is... When you're investing at the seed stage or series A stage, all of these companies go through hopefully more ups than downs throughout their journey. I think there's a bit of a saying that most companies have at least one near-death experience. And in my experience so far, that tends to be the case. So that in mind, I mean, that's another way of saying that it's often very difficult to know which companies are going to succeed and which are not. It's the rare case that you invest in a company where from day zero, everything is up and to the right and remains up and to the right. I think we've been doing this as a firm for 10 years now. I think we've very much internalized that to be the case. And I think 
after having seen a number of different instances where a company, you know, frankly, is going through a difficult time, maybe they're launching a new product, maybe they're launching a new market, maybe they're having some turnover at kind of VP or C-level. Once you've seen those things happen and you've seen companies come out of the other side, hopefully stronger, you become aware that sometimes even when you're working closely with the companies, difficult to predict kind of the ultimate success of them. What we try to do is not disparage and not make strong assessments ourselves over who's worthy of our time and who's not. That's not the attitude that I think is particularly helpful. What we tend to find is that sometimes when companies do go through those difficult stages, they kind of want to lean on us a bit more. Absolutely fine with that. I think we have a lot of evidence and a lot of case studies around being able to get some of those companies through or at least give them a bit of a different perspective in terms of kind of the problems that they're facing. So all of that being said, we tend to remain fairly consistent in terms of the work we do, whether a company is doing well or less well. Sam, I'm going to change topics a bit now. My quick intro is that from my perspective, 2021 has been a really exciting year for venture in Europe. I'd love to kind of ask you a very wide net question, which is when you look at VC in Europe, what are the trends and shifts that get you excited or that make you think or that make you tick? I'd love to hear you reflect on that. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I think 2020 and 2021 have been, let's say, very interesting years in venture and technology specifically. I mean, I think one of the things I think of a lot is we've been in this kind of incredible perfect storm of factors and factors both globally and some which are unique to Europe. And I think the ones which are kind of global is, you know, obviously we've had COVID, which has been incredibly difficult and a huge tragedy. We have had a world where everyone has gone fully remote, where most people are working online, where kind of workforces have been hugely distributed. We've had huge amounts of government stimulus kind of pumped into economies directly. We've had a massive concentration of kind of the search for yield within technology and an early stage technology specifically. And I'm sure kind of over the years we'll maybe reflect on this period and realize just what an incredible sort of cauldron of all these factors we've just been through. So I think always difficult to be a bit sanguine as to where you are within kind of the broader macro when you're in it at this point in time. All of those various factors we've seen as just huge tailwinds to technology and early stage technology over the last couple of years specifically. Now, this has obviously meant that a huge number of things have happened. So the world has flattened, which is kind of a, a phrase that I'm sure we've heard a lot of people say. That's been great for companies in terms of hiring. It's been great for kind of international venture investors who've been able to invest from the US in Europe, from Europe into the US and all over. And I think the question kind of going forward as we sit here in 2020 is to what extent that will continue. I'd be willing to bet that most of those things will continue, certainly kind of the globalization of technology investing, certainly at the early stage. Some of those factors will die away. And if you've looked at equity markets over the last couple of months, maybe we're starting to see the early signs of that and maybe a bit of multiple compression. But I think specifically to your question, how this translates to Europe is we've seen a number of just incredible things happen. I think rather unfairly, Europe has always been seen as 
if I'm honest, kind of a bit of a technological backwater versus the US and more recently China. I think we, frankly, which is maybe underappreciated, have been kind of a net beneficiary of the slowdown of, of China tech, which has obviously been a very deliberate decision by their government. And I, I suspect a lot of those capital inflows have been redirected towards Europe. More importantly, which I think most people on the continent would share is, I think we've seen a few things which have really shown the possibility of building a, a technology company in Europe. First and foremost, we've seen a huge amount of large-scale companies being birthed and ultimately going public. You know, we had UiPath very recently, Adyen, Spotify, we have ASML. We also seem to have an incredible pipeline of large-scale private companies that have reached some scale over the last couple of years. I think second to that, we've seen a new breed of founder. And I think this is the thing that I'm probably the most excited by. And I think we've really seen since the start of lockdowns is a new type of founder that has some experience before who has either started a company, previously worked for a large-scale technology startup, and who are starting companies anew across a number of incredibly exciting new sectors, whether it's climate, crypto, fintech, etc. And I think that talent specifically is going to put Europe in a really strong position over the coming decade or so. To add to that, I think we've also been a beneficiary of some of the global flows of talent. If you look at the US kind of post-Trump, where they've at least anecdotally had a very difficult stance against immigration. I mean, I know this having moved to New York in early 2017, which was at the start of Trump's presidency and can attest to kind of the ill feeling that was felt for people who are not from the US. But more importantly for Europe, I think we've started seeing some of that talent that would either immigrate to the US or from the US specifically want to move to Europe. I think that's actually happened by a combination of us having companies which they deem to be interesting enough. Second to that, remote work's probably been a huge boon as well. So I think talent across the continent has really, really leveled up over the last couple of years. Lastly, I think with those first two factors in mind, we've seen the amount of capital across all stages of private companies increase fairly dramatically. So I'm talking about from seed to pre-IPO. I remember a number of years ago, people in Europe used to reference what was this Series B crunch, yeah. which was effectively the fact that there was capital at seed and A stage, and then you kind of got to B stage and it was anyone's guess as to whether you'd be able to raise. As of today, that's absolutely not the case. There's ample capital throughout. And I think that's important for a number of reasons. First and foremost, it means that founders have a much higher degree of confidence that there is capital out there to fund their initial product and project. And ultimately, they can turn that project or product into a company. B, it means that they can go much longer. So whereas before, you know, maybe they got to B, C stage, there wasn't a depth of capital willing to fund them to get them to the next inflection point. Whereas today, there's a higher degree of confidence in that happening. So that means that founders 
are starting more companies and they are able to take those companies to much higher levels than they were before because of the depth of capital that is available to them. And on this high note of the state of the European VC ecosystem, let's jump to the quick fire round. Sam, we always end our episodes with quick answer questions, 30, 60 seconds per one. Are you ready? Yes, absolutely. Within your verticals, what areas excite you the most that other people don't really feel that excited about? I, that's a hard question to answer these days. It seems like everyone's excited about everything. But um, <laughs> I would probably say semiconductors. This is something that I've always had an eye on since I started my career in 2012. And I think we're at an incredibly interesting time today where there's both geopolitical tensions around semiconductor sovereignty, as well as specifically in Europe, a pointed need for us to have our own semiconductor companies locally. To add to that, I would also argue that Europe probably has the most important company in technology globally, which I think is maybe underappreciated, which is ASML, Mm. which creates the machines that create the semiconductor chips, and more specifically, the ones at the absolute frontier in terms of node sizing. Here's a curveball because we asked you the other question during our discussion. So this question is, how or what would be your best advice to emerging managers out there? Figure out the thing that you are uniquely place to provide founders, i.e. your space within the ecosystem, and create a product where founders ultimately come to you. So that can be positioning around a specific sector, a specific point of value add, but be very clear in terms of what that is and how you communicate that, and just look to gather all of the best kind of founders and companies within that space. Awesome. And final question, Sam, what can we expect in the future from you and Project A? Hopefully loads of amazing partnerships with incredible founders. Sam, super cool to have you today. Thank you for joining us. We hope to welcome you again eventually in the European VC. Uh, It's been great fun. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks a lot, guys. It's been really, really awesome being on the podcast today. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.